When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to withdraw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful, sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Morning, everyone. Yeah, I'm Johnny, um, one of the pastors here at the gate. It's lovely to be here. Um, we, are, we are continuing our sermon series in uh, Galatians. So do you have that reading open in front of you? Um, don't, don't close your Bibles. Um, I, I don't know if, I know some of you have. I don't know if anyone's seen the Christmas film Elf. Um, yeah, some of you are smiling. It's a great film. Essentially, it revolves around an elf, believe it or not, called Buddy. Uh, Buddy, when he was in an orphanage and he kind of accidentally um, got taken by Santa in Santa's sack and he got raised in Lapland uh, by Papa Elf or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, he was always bigger than all the other elves. He was human, right? Uh, but he didn't know that there was something different about him. Anyway, one day he finds out that despite being double the size and pretty human-like, that in fact he wasn't an elf, he's a human and he has to go back and um, look for his parents in New York City. Okay? That's all kind of irrelevant to the point of today. Uh, but um, one thing that is relevant is that he goes through these funny scenes of kind of like going through New York and trying to adapt to life um, in New York. And one of the, the funniest scenes is definitely when he goes past this mediocre uh, cafe. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, with a flashing neon sign on the window saying, world's best cup of coffee. Right? And at this, kind of Buddy excitedly goes in and he says, you did it. Congratulations. World's best cup of coffee coffee. Great job, everybody. And yet, kind of, as four unamused staff members, kind of, uh, kind of from this pretty dingy diner, glare back at him, you see Buddy gets this kind of sense that, oh, maybe, may, maybe the, the kind of message on the window doesn't quite match what he sees inside, that the message advertised is not the reality. And believe it or not, that's what today's passage is about. Um, not so much coffee, uh, but the Apostle Paul essentially is writing this message to the Galatians, and he says that it's possible for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to be preached but not practised. And that this disconnect is not only disappointing like it was for Buddy, but it can be dangerous. It is dangerous. Now, if you were here last week, um, we were introduced to this idea when Paul spoke about some false believers who were guilty of this exact thing. They preached the same good news of Jesus, that through simple faith in him, we can be right with God without having to do anything on top of what Jesus has already done 
for us. This was the good news on the coffee shop window, if you like. But open the door and actually these false believers were telling, particularly the male believers, that in order to be a proper Christian, you had to be circumcised like they were in the Old Testament. You had to do something on top of what Jesus has done for you. And you see, for Paul, the moment you add anything that we need to do on top of what Jesus has already done, well, the good news is no longer good news. What was advertised on the window does not match the reality inside the church. Being circumcised to be a superior Christian just doesn't match the message of salvation by grace alone. And you might think, well, at least they were preaching the right thing. <laughs> you know, why the big deal about kind of, they've got this little addition thing a bit wrong, but you know, why the big deal? Well, the reason it's a big deal is that what we believe about the world is normally caught, not taught. That is, that we form our beliefs more on what we see than what we hear. When I grew up, my, my parents' beliefs and values were instilled in me, not so much by talking about them. No, no, I saw and I learnt those beliefs and values by seeing what they cared about, by what they told me off for, the things that they praised, the people they emulated. What they believed was good was sometimes taught, but rarely. Rather, it was caught as I picked up the culture of my family home for good or for ill. And it's the same in any organisation, any club, business, school, or indeed church. Christians so often form their view of the gospel message, arguably more from their church culture from the way that things are done than from, what is ex- uh, than from what is explicitly taught. And this is why Paul is adamant that the church practices the gospel message that it preaches, because if we don't, people will believe a false gospel. And this is far more important than missing out on the world's best cup of coffee. The gospel is the world's best news of free salvation by grace alone. It is a matter of eternal life and death. So it's crucial that the gospel of grace is not only heard in our sermons, but it's seen at work in the culture of our church. And to warn the Galatians of how easy it is to undermine the message of God's free grace by our actions, well, he uses the example of Peter, right? This is the same Peter as Jesus' close buddy, right, as you see in the Gospels. It's pillar of the early church. The implication here is that if Peter could get this wrong... And how much more could we get it wrong at the gate church or in any church? So let's take a look um, at, well, two points today. First of all, let's have a look at the time when the gospel was preached but not practiced. And by implication, can be preached and not practiced. So when the gospel was preached and not practiced, have, that Bible, have your Bible open, um, as I said, uh, open on page 1169. You'll see there in verse 11 of chapter 2, that um, when Cephas came to Antioch, now Cephas is Peter, okay? Confusing, we won't go into that now. Peter, Cephas, same thing, okay? Um, So when Peter goes to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That is, there was a disconnect between this message and how he was acting. We saw last week in in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 that on paper, Peter and Paul had exactly the same gospel message, that salvation wasn't just for the Jews, it was for for everyone, Jews, non-Jews, across the world, otherwise known as Gentiles. You see the word Gentiles, it just means non-Jew. 
And not only that, these non-Jews, these Gentiles, didn't have to take on all of the Jewish food laws or be circumcised in order to be part of God's new international people. They didn't have to become Jews. And and this was a huge change for Jewish believers at the time who'd grown up seeing Gentiles as dirty, outsiders of God's promise, certainly not people not to eat with, not to sit around a dinner table with. But now, Jew and Gentile had been united by their common faith in Jesus, not as some second-class tier of Christians, but as equal recipients of God's grace. On this, this this message, Peter and Paul completely agreed. And yet, verse 12, while Peter had first shared in this multi-ethnic Christian meal together, when certain men from Jerusalem, from James, came, what did Peter do? Well, verse 12, he drew back. He separated himself from the non-Jewish believers. Do you see what's going on there? Peter's message is that because all sinners, all are sinners, Jew and Gentile, the only way to be saved is by God's free gift of grace. And if this is true, there can be no better or worse Christians. No, all are welcome to put their trust in Jesus and find forgiveness and salvation in him. You don't need to adopt food laws. You don't need to be circumcised. No, no, no. If you, if you had different classes of Christians, then it would no longer rest on God's grace, but on us, which is the very opposite of God's grace. And so when these Jewish guys come from Antioch and Peter begins to distance himself from the Gentile believers, he was communicating that these guys were a second-class group of Christians. He was contradicting his message. So verse 13, Paul accused him of hypocrisy. Now a really important question, particularly for us as we think about this, is why? Why did Peter do that? We're told in verse 12, he did it, there it is, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That is, those professing believers who, on, who, who insisted on non-Jewish converts becoming Jews in order to be a proper believer. Peter was scared about how these guys would view him for eating with people who were seen as a bit, a bit dirty, a bit, a bit not, quite, not quite like us Jews. You see, because human beings are so bent on creating systems, whether religious or otherwise, whereby we can be seen as superior to other people, well, the idea of God accepting us solely on the basis of his grace and undeserved kindness, it just doesn't sit well with us. It's scandalous. So we're scared of them. We find it easier to create our own ways to distance ourselves from others in order to be seen as righteous and good. Now, I think it's important to say at this point that I don't think Peter was necessarily doing this deliberately. People argue about that, just so you know. But I don't think he does. I think he does it inadvertently. I think this came out of the self-righteousness that was lurking deep in his heart as it does in all of our hearts. From his lips came the good news of free grace. But from his heart came actions which contradicted the freedom and grace that he preached. And we all do this. We all do this. 
At an individual level, we champion our own opinions and preferences, not by shouting loudly about how superior they are to other people's opinions and preferences in church. No, 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 it's far more subtle than that. Instead, we, we probably choose to invest in or prioritise those people who are like us, separating ourselves subtly from those who are different, who, I don't know, wear different clothes or whose background um, is different, who wear different clothes whose class is unfamiliar to us. We might gossip with those who are like us about other people, creating a, the necessary echo chamber to confirm our own sense of superiority. We don't, sometimes we might, but often we don't do this maliciously. This just, these kind of anti-gospel actions just spring out of our naturally sinful hearts. It also happens at the, the whole church level perhaps because of certain leadership tendencies in us or perhaps because there's a majority culture in the church, we may inadvertently celebrate and privilege those who, um, I don't know, are, are kind of, I mean, pick your virtue, are highly competent or productive or socially able or name particular virtue which we may prize more highly than others. And as those preferences and privileges embed themselves into the culture of a church, we are at risk of two things. First, we may be unwittingly setting up a two-tier Christianity where some in the church are superior to others. Secondly, we might be inadvertently adding laws which people pick up without it being spoken inadvertently. Something like this. To get on well here, you have to be like this group of people. You have to do X, Y, or Z. You have to be X, Y, and Z. Will, will churches stand at the front and preach what those virtues are? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We say it's by grace alone. And yet the message we preach can be betrayed by our actions which communicate the opposite. It's dangerous. We can be like that New York cafe saying we have the world's best cup of coffee when what fills our cup is actually an overmilk Nest Cafe just sitting on the side getting cold. Look at verse 14. It says there, they were not acting in line with the gospel. They were not acting in line with the gospel. And this is why Paul rebukes Peter publicly. Because verse 13 shows us that other Christians, even the mature Barnabas were being led astray by Peter's actions. Here's the proof that what we believe is caught more than it's taught. Peter hadn't changed his message, but by his hypocritical actions, people were beginning to believe a different gospel to the true one being proclaimed. So that's our first point. When the gospel's preached but not practiced, but more cheerier, when the gospel is preached, is both preached and practiced. When the gospel is both preached and practiced. Because at this point, that the Apostle Paul literally can't help himself but remind his readers of the gospel message of grace so that we can see how hypocritical it is to add extra requirements to Christians on top of grace. He, he, he tells us what the gospel is. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. Um, side point, despite the speech marks which the NIV add, this is more likely addressing the Galatians. Um, it, it's not kind of, and here's the rest of my conversation with Peter. Okay, that, that, that's about 
Ask me about that afterwards if you're interested. It's not interesting. Um, so he, so he's, he's reminding the Galatians. He's, and um, he's like, listen, verse 15, he starts by taking a swipe at those Jewish Christians who think that they're more superior to the, non, uh, to the, the, to the Gentiles. He's like, listen, unlike those Gentiles that you judge to be so sinful, you as Jews obviously know what the Bible has already taught. You know that, right? Because you're so superior. And what, is, what, what has the Bible already taught? Well, v- verse 16, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what sums up the whole Bible, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The good news is that no one, no Jew or no Gentile, has ever been or will ever be judged as acceptable before God through what they do, have done, or will do. Not by works of the Jewish law, not by works of the moral law. Paul's saying to the self-righteous Jews, you know that, right? You know that God has been clear that the whole of his scriptures, that the whole world, Jews and non-Jews alike, have fallen short of God's perfect standards and do so every day and need to be made right with him through Jesus' death on the cross as he died for our sins and he gave us his perfections. You who are so superior, you know that. He's taking a bit of a jibe, a bit of a swipe at them, because obviously they don't, otherwise they wouldn't be acting the way they are. Yes, the Jewish Christians should have known that, but do you know that? Do you know that God welcomes you as his beloved, saved, and eternally secure child through nothing you have done? Do you know that there's nothing you can do or be to add to what Christ has done on your behalf, and nothing you can fail to do to take away from it? Just as these Christians needed to be reminded that they had received God's love, grace and eternal riches in Christ apart from circumcision and apart from food laws, do you this morning need to be reminded that you now stand in God's love, grace and eternal riches in Christ apart from how often you prayed this week, apart from how much you've served the church, apart from how strong or weak your faith has been, apart from how sexually pure or impure your thoughts and actions have proven this week, apart from how others have perceived you this week, apart from how well or how badly you parented, apart from how much you said or little you said in the Bible study, apart from how much growth has happened or hasn't happened in your life, apart from how totally out of control or in control your life is, apart from how many questions you still have for God and the gospel. We are brought into God's family, verse 16, not by our works, not by our lives, because by works of the law, that is the things we do, no one will be justified. The gospel message of grace has smashed away any view that to be God's child I need to do something to, or be something to earn it. It's the message of grace, it's the gospel. Indeed, that's Paul's point in verse 21. Look at that, just jump ahead a little bit. He says this in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. Well, how might I do that? For if righteousness could be gained through the law, through what we do, Christ died for nothing. Do you set aside the grace of God by thinking that God relates to you on the basis of how well you're doing? 
if that were the case, if he did, Christ died for nothing. But of course, Christ died so that you'd be free from ever having to ask yourself if your life meets the standard. Because Christ meant it for us, for you. So Paul's kind of, at this point, he's kind of like halfway through uh, reminding the, Gentiles, the Gentile Christians of, sorry, the Galatian Christians of, of what the gospel is. Um, but he anticipates at this point a question that I hope everyone has in their mind niggling away. If this question isn't niggling in your head, then I'm not sure we've understood how amazing this news is. Verse 17 and 18, Paul knows what they and undoubtedly we will be thinking in response to this lavish, free grace. They and we should be thinking, wait a second, Paul. If I'm free from ever having to ask if my life measures up to salvation and God's favour, well, Matt, doesn't that mean I can just go and sin the world over? Follow with me from verse 19, his response. Which is essentially is no. For, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's essentially saying this, so long as you think God's favour depends on you, so long as you have categories for superior and inferior Christians, different groups of Christians where we can rise up the ladder or fall down the ladder, would you, you're never going to be truly free to serve God. You're never going to be truly free to live a new life. You're going to be enslaved. You'll always be crushed under the burden of how far short you fall. Or you'll be self-righteous, thinking that you meet the grade when you don't, incidentally, and so you'll be guilty of self-righteousness. But united to Christ in his death, in some true and yet mysterious way, our old lives were crucified with Christ. They were put to death, not so that we would die, but so that we might be raised like Christ to new life. He's saying that it's only when you take hold of your freedom from ever, ever having to ask yourself whether God loves me, whether I'm accepted, only with that freedom will your joy and love well up into a new life of love, a new life of service, a new life of worship of the one who gave his life for me. Incidentally, only time in the New Testament it says Jesus died for me. And of course, he died for us, collectively as well. This is the gospel we preach in the church. This is the flashing neon message on our window. World's best news inside. But of course, we don't want to be like Buddy the Elf's coffee shop, do we? in more ways than one. We don't want the, what is proclaimed from the front to be different to the reality we experience on the inside. We don't want to make Peter's mistake of preaching this freedom but <laughs> denying it by our actions. We want to be a church where that freedom is both preached and practised, where it is communicated in our sermons and also our service of other people, explained in our Bible studies and experienced in our relationships. Brothers and sisters, what would this kind of church look like? How would grace not only be heard, but seen? Above all, wouldn't it look like a countercultural place without cliques or divides? 
without an in-crowd, separated because of their social status or competence or productivity or Christian maturity or stage of life, where each person was embraced as God embraces them despite ongoing sin, despite personality grievances, despite how awkward they might be to talk to or how different they are to me or how little they can understand of what my life is actually like, regardless of how they choose to play the music on a Sunday or how their political views I just see as completely abhorrent and I can't get on with, wouldn't a church culture which practices grace and freedom be primarily seen in a unity that nothing else in the world can achieve? One that transcends age and stage and ethnicity and culture and personality, experience, class, all of those things that divide society. Wouldn't a church practicing grace lay down no cultural laws which a person has to adopt in order to be accepted? Having to reach a certain level of theological understanding? Having to be strong in suffering? Having to hide the sin that is corroding our soul for fear of rejection? Brothers and sisters, my question is this. Where are you And maybe where are we as a church denying the gospel of grace by our actions? Do you only invest in the people in church most like you? Do you find yourself taking refuge in gossiping to those about others, about the way things are done in gospel family, about us as pastors of the church? Do you find yourself trying to find a platform in church by by your fancy theological words or your many words in a Bible study, by your never-ending service of other people desperately seeking their approval of you when actually you have gods already, by hiding the sins that you strategically keep from others? Do you you find yourself trying to impress some people in church whilst not really caring about others? Friends, by these things we give lip service to the message of God's grace, but we live as if we're saved by works, by our own competence, by our own superiority, by our own giftedness. So long as sin resides in us, which it will, there's always going to be this threat in ourselves and in our churches. And perhaps that sounds really depressing. <laughs> it is quite depressing, to be honest. But, but, but perhaps it's kind of like there's no hope. And it, I, just, I, I just don't think that that is the case here. There's something embedded here which is really, really, well, gives us real cause for, help, for hope. The message isn't, don't be like Peter. He got it wrong, don't be like him. What do you think that we're to learn here that it is one of Jesus' apostles getting it so blatantly wrong? Peter always got it wrong. That's why I love him. (laughs) He always got it wrong. Aren't we to learn the lesson here that we've seen across the passage that even as an apostle Peter, he wasn't a superior Christian? He struggled against the same sins as the rest of us. And yet Jesus chose to use people like him to not only preach, but to portray and to practice the gospel to a lost world who will be compelled or repelled by the extent to which our actions represent our message. To this failure of a man, famous words in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock, 
and on this rock, I build my church. You see, we may laugh at that neon sign advertising world's best cup of coffee when the inside looks like a complete mess. But this is exactly what God does by advertising the best news the world could ever hear on the windows of the church, or the windows of our own individual lives. God has chosen us to be a walking, talking picture of his grace, both because we need it ourselves, but also as we begin to live that grace out amongst one another, both within and beyond the church. Even in our failure to communicate the gospel through our actions, we come to Jesus humbly in repentance and confidently in his forgiveness and his love, just as he forgave Peter three times after denying him. And his grace towards us means that we can get up at the end of church today and say hi to that person who's nothing like us. It means we can forgive quickly when we'd otherwise be angry. It means we could no longer seek to build a platform of whatever kind at church or at work or in relational circles. It means we can do all of these things which actually transform our lives. Because the lives that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who graciously gave himself up for us and who has made his grace not only be heard in our message but seen in our lives. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are so gracious, Lord, to not only forgive us and then call us to change our act, get our act together, but Lord, it is the grace that is at work in us. It's your grace that saves us, which is also the grace that changes us. It's the grace that we live by. It's the grace that we now um, seek to communicate in our words and in our actions to other people. So Lord God, we just pray that as a church, there would not only be a message of grace, but there'd be a culture of grace. There'd be an experience of grace. Father, we pray that for our Sunday gatherings. We pray that for our midweek gospel families. We pray that in all of our interpersonal relationships. And where there is not grace, Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would bring conviction of sin so we could repent and find more grace for us as we just feed on what you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you for him. Amen.